Hi, I'm D.W. from Houston. I'm Kate Urquhart from Minneapolis. I'm Jamie from New York City. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is produced independently and supported by listeners like you and me. You should support the show like I did. It's easy. Just visit MaximumFun.org slash donate. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Ice-T. He talks to a whole pile of hip-hop luminaries about their craft in his recent documentary. You know, every rapper walks into a, a show and says, I'm not rapping tonight. I'm a chill. But it's biting me, fighting me, enticing me to rhyme. I can't hold it back. I'm looking for the line, taking off my coat, clearing my throat. This rhyme will be kicking in until I hit my last note. It's like crazy. It's like it's art. I mean, we take a lot of time with these rhymes. I want you to hear every word. And the great MCs understand that's important. It's Bullseye. This week, Ice-T interviews Snoop, Rakim, and a bunch of other famous rappers in his new documentary. So I just called all my friends about my address book. I said, look, I got an idea. I'm not going to ask you about money, cars, girls, beef, jewelry, none of that. I just want to ask you about the craft. Everybody's like, wow, nobody ever asks us those questions. I talked to Greta Gerwig, star of the new movie Lola Versus. If I can make people feel like you can look like a normal person and still be on screen, I think that's a good thing. And Aaron Freeman, formerly of the rock band Ween, on the song that changed his life. All that and more this week on Bullseye. Let's go. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Every week on this show, we ask for recommendations from our favorite culture critics for stuff that's worth your time. This week, we're talking comic books with our comic book critics, Brian Heater, comics columnist for BoingBoing.net, and Alex Zalbin of MTV Geek and the Comic Book Club Live. Hey, guys. Hey, Jesse. Hey. Hey. Hey, Jesse. <laughs> Brian, I'm going to start with you and your recommendation, Skyscrapers of the Midwest uh, by Joshua Cotter. Tell me a, a little bit about it. Uh, this was really the first time I had ever uh, had ever seen Josh's work. It was originally serialized in uh, in a couple of floppies and got collected in a, a beautiful volume by Ad House Books a couple of years ago. You know, the first thing that really draws you to the work is his art, which is absolutely incredible. It's very reminiscent of our Crumb style when he did uh, Fritz the Cat, but um, a little bit more cuddly than that. Story-wise, it's about a couple of kids growing up in kind of a, a harsh setting in the Midwest. Um, you know, there's some abuse going on, and it's really about their escape into fantasies. There's a lot of uh, giant robots and, and monsters and, and things like that that play a part in the story. Alex, let's talk about your pick, Box Office Poison, by Alex Robinson. Um, this was a, a long-running series, and it's been collected in one book. Uh, tell me a little bit about what it's about. The simple pitch, which I think uh, makes it almost a little sound a little too boring, is it's like Reality Bites, but set in New York. And it was drawn a lot on Alex Robinson's experiences uh, growing up in his 20s in New York. And it really, for anybody that grew up then uh, in the 90s or otherwise, it really, really connects to that feeling. There's a sequence where two characters go on a date and they touch hands for the first time. And where their hands touch, a gigantic lightning bolt comes down from the sky and hits them. And that graphically perfectly captures that feeling of somebody you really like when you touch hands with them for the first time. Uh, the whole book is like that. It gets a little dark and a little sad by the end, but it's perfectly deserved. And uh, it's, it's really the book that got me into things other than superhero comics. 
Alex, it seems like that those magical elements are very contrary to that reality bites aesthetic, the sort of slacker 90s Generation X thing. Um, tell me about how the two of them play together. Well, I think what it does is it is surprising and it is shocking when something like that happens, but it makes it stand out in just the right way. It feels earned when he gets to it and it builds from there. He never uses it for cheap effect. Alex Zalbin recommends Box Office Poison by Alex Robinson. You can find Alex's work at MTV Geek and uh, in a live show regularly in New York City Comic Book Club Live. Brian Heater recommends Skyscrapers of the Midwest by Joshua Cotter. You can find Brian's work in his regular comics column on Boing Boing and on Engadget. Uh, Brian, Alex, thanks for joining us again. Thanks again. Yeah, thank you. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Ice-T. He talks to a whole pile of hip-hop luminaries about their craft in his recent documentary. It's called Something from Nothing, The Art of Rap. We spoke earlier this year. My guest Ice-T is an entertainment business veteran. He's been acting for 20 years, and he was a pioneer of West Coast hip-hop in the early 80s. His roots are so deep that his first screen credit in 1984's Breakin' was as Rap Talker. <laughs> That's not a joke. His breakthrough on screen was in 1991's New Jack City, and he spent the last dozen years or so solving crimes on Law & Order SVU. As an MC and as the frontman of the metal band Body Count, he's released more than a dozen albums in his 25-year music career. His new documentary, which he directed and hosts, is called Something From Nothing, The Art of Rap. He traveled from coast to coast talking to rappers from Grandmaster Kaz to Kanye West about the work of the MC. Ice, welcome to Bullseye. It's great to have you on the show. Oh, man, thanks for the support. Thanks for having me, man. I want to play a little bit of your first record. Um, this is 1983's The Coldest Rap. Let's take a listen. Y'all, 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 please, please. Please check it out, cause I'm a player. I'm always clean. I rode Mercedes Benz when I was 17. From the womb to the tomb, I run my game. Cause I'm cold as ice, and I show no shame. Close. I got more money than the U.S. men. I ride ragtop rolls with rocks on my hand. Maserati and Mercedes-Benz. I have an ocean line, private jets. Bel Air bookies place my bets. I own islands off the coast of France. And I wear designer shirts and pants. When I was brought into this world, my mama never asked. I was a boy or a girl. Plus, I rolled over to her and gave her a kiss. She said, your daddy don't rock me like this. When the doctor hit me on the behind, I broke on down with a funky rhyme. The nurses said I was awfully cute when I played at the joint in a three suit. Y'all, 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 please, please, please check it out. This song, I mean, this is like uh, this is like an electro record. It's yeah. actually Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis on the production. Yeah, what happened with that was 
you know, I'm I'm at a beauty parlor. At that time, I had my hair. My hair was permed and curled, like some real pimp stuff. And uh, I used to say the rhymes to the girls, just, you know, trying to mack them down. You know, it was my, my, my way of entertaining them. And this guy said, hey, man, you want to make a record? I'm like, word? Yeah, I got a record. I got a studio. This particular guy's name was Willie Strong. And he had another guy named Cletus Anderson. And they own uh, a record store in L.A. called VIP. They owned this track with Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis on it. Somebody was singing on it. And they took me in the studio. They wiped the singing track. They put me in a booth just like we're sitting in now talking. And he goes, go. And I just said every rhyme I knew him off the top of my head. I think I did that record in one take. And I'm like, you know, I said the hook and everything. And it just kept going and going until I ran out of rhymes. And they're like, that's a take. And they put it out. It's called The Coldest Rap. And, uh. I was just saying, all, I'm the pimp, the player, the woman layer, the hooli doula, the whole house ruler. I was, I got so many clothes in my wardrobe each day. When I put some in, I got to throw some away, you know. So it's just me talking that player stuff and just having fun with the rap. 1983. You know, there's a great part in the movie uh, that you've directed, The Art of Rap, where you're talking about this kind of um, pre-hip-hop rapping and rhyming, this kind of just street rapping. Toasting, you know, they call it, yeah. Tell me a little bit. That was that where was that where you first, or, or was your plan always to be, you know, in 1979, Rapper's Delight broke nationally. I mean, it was a huge record. I had no idea it was ever going to be rap music. Just those rhymes was something that you would do on the street. There was a, um, a album if you research it. It's called The Hustlers Convention, and it was like a you know old cats saying rhymes. And you had the Last Poets. Then you had Gil Scott Heron. And, uh, you know, Iceberg Slims even did an album called Reflection, where he spoke in rhyme. Speaking in rhyme has been tradition in black, you know, culture for years. Now, doing it syncopated to a beat, that's different. That's where rap and hip-hop came. So I had all these little rhymes. I used to make rhymes for the gangs just to entertain my friends. And um, when I first heard hip-hop, I'm like, I could do that. You know, it was similar to something I'd already been doing, but it took a while to learn how to get it to lock into the beat. And like Rakim says, correct use of syllables. You know, you somebody could try to rhyme and you could listen to them and you can go, it's just not locked in. And it's like all they got to do is drop one syllable and it'll just lock in. And that's when you get into the craft. We actually have a clip from the movie of Rakim talking a little bit about his writing process. Um, Let's take a listen to that. I try to start off with 16 dots on the paper. What? Start off with 16 dots on the paper. If it's a 16 ball rhyme, at least I know, you know, what I'm dealing with. My thing was, if four balls was this long, my thing was, I got... You know, I, I see like a graph in between them four bars. And within that, I could place so many words and so many syllables and so many words. And, and at times, you know, if the beat was perfect, I can take it to the point where there's there's no other words you could put in that four bars. 
there's these two revolutions going on um, shortly after your first LP came out. Um, you know, right in this time, 86, 87, 88, 89, um, one is on the West Coast, you have NWA taking what you did on, on Six in the Morning and making it into a phenomenon. A super movement. Yeah. The other one is this sort of aesthetic revolution, which Rakim is, I think, probably the greatest. I mean, you there are some other truly exceptional examples. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I mean, you talked to Big Daddy Kane in the movie, um, and there were folks who were doing complex things before Rakim. But there's this aesthetic change going on at that time, which is, you know, this this complexity is entering hip-hop. I call it verbal gymnastics. It's like, not, let's not just rhyme simple to the 4-4. Four, four. We're going to intricate it. We're going to make it in 16s. Uh, L.A. at the, that time was trying to define themselves. And uh, we had to let the world know what we looked like. So while we were busy defining ourselves, which was pretty much a gang culture, uh, New York had taken it off into what, what in hip-hop they call skills. They're like, okay, anyone can rhyme 4-4, four, four, but do you have skills? Can you take it to the next level? So what I had to do is say, I'm not going to be able to have maybe that verbal complexity. I have to rhyme heavy. I have to make, you know, uh, like I said in a Mind Over Matter, it ain't really how much you say is what you say. I got no f- time on the mic to play. I have to take what I say and just make it heavy. So every single bar means something. And in Chuck D, I live off of his rhyme. I don't rhyme for the sake of riddling. So there's no riddles in my rhymes. Every single word means something. There's something really great that Chuck D says um, in the movie that I use, frankly, something that had never occurred to me. And Chuck D's style, for those who, for some reason, have never heard Public Enemy, is a sort of booming and proclamatory. Yeah, yeah. It's, he has one of the most powerful Here voices. it is. You know, whoa, okay. Yeah. <laughs> and Chuck talks about the fact that he developed that he developed this style and many of the MCs that went before him developed these sort of proclamatory big booming styles essentially because they were rapping on such lousy sound systems that in order to cut through the crappy sound you just had to boom like it had to be as clear as a bell and as powerful as a you know a gunshot, or else it wasn't going to get heard. You don't know how many MCs I've trained to rap live. Like I've taken people out on tour, and I've like, look, I got to teach you how to rap live. The trick is, first off, you have to listen to the monitors. Secondly, you have to listen to your voice and how it's coming through that monitor, and and actually EQ your own voice to break. That system. So if I got a very low voice like that and it sounds muggy, I might have to take my voice up to where it's going to cut. You know, I work with Slayer and uh, Tommy from Slayer said one time, he said, well, if I can't hear what you're saying, how can I hear what you're saying? You know, so you have to. I mean, we take a lot of time with these rhymes. I want you to hear every word. And the great MCs understand that's important. These are like if you even look at the paper, like it's like entry, it's thousands and thousands of words. I told somebody one day, I said, you know, I take a Bruce Springsteen album, I could take all the words in that whole album, and that's one song for me. The amount of numbers of words I have to use to get one song done. 
It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is the rapper and actor Ice-T. His recent documentary, Something from Nothing, The Art of Rap, is now out on DVD. I want to play a clip of a great freestyler who also um, has spent his career refining and refining and refining his use of language, and that's Eminem. Um, this is him talking to you in Detroit about his writing process. What I love about rap is that it feels like it's puzzles to me. Like words are like puzzles and trying to figure out a puzzle and trying to figure out what word can go here. Like how can I take uh, words and, and put them at the end of the sentence, but in between maybe make some words rhyme in between that, that rhyme and like sandwich them. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Like, so sandwich those words and try to make them, make them rhyme inside of the phrase and then come back outside and try to, you know, try to rhyme with the word that I ended on the snare. You know, like I just like, I'm just I'm kind of real into the, the technical part of, of it. That sounded complicated with what he was saying. Like a rapper can follow that. And to everybody else, that probably sound like, what the hell is he talking about? <laughs> yeah. Um, it, it must have been it, it must have been fun to go and talk to all of these people that you've known for probably most of these people are probably personal friends and acquaintances. No, everyone was. Everyone was. The only way I could do the movie was just call my friends. I I had no ability to call. I didn't really want to call people I didn't know because I wanted the film to feel like a conversation. So I just called all my friends about my address book. I said, look, I got an idea. I want to do a movie. I'm not going to ask you about money, cars, girls, beef, jewelry, none of that. I just want to ask you about the craft. Everybody's like, wow, nobody ever asked us those questions. So they were like, word, I just come through with the camera, get me. So now you got to hunt them down and chase them because all these guys are moving targets and stuff. So you're trying to, you know, you're trying to get Dr. Dre and he's like, show up at my crib at three. And you show and his man's like, yo, Dre had to pick his son up. He'll be back at six. You get back <laughs> at six. And then somebody's like, yo, Dre says tomorrow at nine. Is that cool, Ice? And they're like, oh, my God, what are we going to do? I got a camera crew. Somebody goes, be real's on the phone. OK, tell be real we're on our way. You know, so we just running and gunning. And there's no rehearsal or anything. No one was prepped for the questions. I was just having fun talking to my friends about something we all love. Because I imagine that when when you go and, you know, have lunch with Dub C or something like that, you guys are talking about each other's kids or you're talking about, you know. We're talking about old what times. What movie you saw, like whatever. Like yeah. Just normal people's friend stuff. Yeah, we talk about. Xbox and we talk about this we talk about that but mostly we reminisce I think you know if you were a football player and you see some of your old teammates you you talk about game six in the playoffs you know I got we, we all have so many inside stories I remember I was with Dub C in Canada and Coolio broke into a pawn shop you know like <laughs> <laughs> and stole like a guitar or something you know and so i'm like responsible for them they was like the mad circle and i'm like responsible for them and coolio had a guitar and i'm like yo where did you get that guitar and he's like somebody snitched and said yo coolio then broke the window at the i'm like yo we got a show <laughs> Tomorrow, like you can't be robbing. They're gonna. What if you get arrested tomorrow? You in Canada, dude. So that it was like. There's so many of those stories, and I think one of the things about interviewing, like I guess more classic MCs and people from that were in my area, a time when I was, you know, out there on the road. You got humility. 
You know, when you deal with a new MC, everything's on point. There's no mistakes. There's no problems. I can't, you know, no, we don't have no mistakes. But when you get to a somebody like Run, he can look back and it's just funny. You know, you can, you, you, you've already succeeded in what you want to do. You can kind of laugh at your life. After a break, I finally crack the case of whether Ice-T actually wrote a rap album for Mr. T in the early 1980s. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and PRI, Public Radio International. If you've got burning opinions about Bullseye, come discuss them with other fans on our forum at forum.maximumfun.org. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest, Ice-T, is the director and the host of the film Something from Nothing, The Art of Rap. We spoke earlier this year. I want to take a listen to uh, Dougie Fresh uh, talking a little bit about... um, the rappers who went before him and inspired him. Can you, off the head, break out uh, one of your favorite rhymes from any rapper, from any generation, from any time that you walk with that's just stuck in your head? I mean, for me, man, the three best MCs of all time is Melly Mel, Kumo D, and Grandmaster Cass. Right. Hands down. You got any as rhymes as off foundation. the head? Off the, the... I know all they rhymes, so don't say ask one, me that. Say one. <laughs> just say one. Say one. Kumo D said, I rhyme 100 miles an hour with lightning speed and power. Sweetest of the sweet make an MC sour. Timber as a tower because I devour any MC and I can prove it now or a little bit later. I mean, come on, I can keep going with <laughs> That's this. right. But see, the funny thing is each one of their styles are very different. Like, yeah. Modi was technically extreme. I mean, like, like sharp. And then slickness and flavor was cast. Melly Mel was spiritual. You ask all the guys in this movie, we don't see it from everyone, a question like that. Yeah. And I, I wonder what made you decide to ask that question. Because hip-hop is, uh, for, is for all of its virtues, not typically uh, a genre that's about talking about what you like about somebody else. <laughs> yeah, well, the trick with hip-hop, like I, when I talk to Snoop, hip-hop is a sport. Uh, the cl- only music that's really, really close to a sport. You know, it starts off, my DJ's better than yours, I can out-rap you, I can out-dance you, my graffiti piece is better than you. It's very competitive. But we are all fans. You start off a fan. Before you start playing basketball, guess where you were? In the bleachers, watching Michael Jordan slam that ball, and you wanted to do it. You start off listening to rap. So we all are fans. Who 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 defines a great MC for you? I mean, you know, to me, between Chuck D, I mean, there's great ones. Chuck D, KRS-One, Ice Cube. I guess a lot of people's favorite is Rakim. And Rakim was just so lyrically deep that, it just made everybody kind of like, it wasn't just wordplay, it was like content, it was heavy, and his flow was impeccable. You you say in the movie, um, when you're talking with him, that what was so amazing to you is that when you heard Rakim, it was like being transported to a different place, which is very different than what had been going on in hip-hop to that point, which was essentially either... Um, either just talking about fun stuff, who's the best, whatever, mm-hmm. or talking about this is the reality of here. This is where I'm from. This is describing my situation. That- well, he he also had the ability to hit MCing dead on the head. Like 
and, and Eric B. for presidents, I came in the door, I said it before, I never let the mic magnetize me no more. That means, you know, every rapper walks into a, a show and says, I'm not rapping tonight. I'm going to chill. But it's biting me, fighting me, enticing me to rhyme. I can't hold it back. I'm looking for the line, taking off my coat, clearing my throat. This rhyme will be kicking in until I hit my last note. It's like... And then, and then, like a microphone thing, where he says, "I was a fiend before I became a teen. I melted microphones instead of cones or ice cream. Music orientated, so when hip hop was originated, I did it like pieces of puzzles, complicated. I grabbed the mic and tried to say yes, y'all. They try to take it and say that I'm too small. Cool, I don't get upset. I kick a hole in the speaker, pull the plug, then I jet. I mean, it's like crazy. It's like it's art. I could take another rapper and he could rap." 10 times as long as what I just did and never say anything as fly as that. So that's why it's like it's not really how much you say, it's what you say. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest, Ice-T, is the director and the host of the film Something from Nothing, The Art of Rap. I want to play a clip of uh, Nas talking about hip-hop. I think Nas has this really passionate answer to this question that, that you asked everyone. And l- l- let's hear it. Why do you think rap isn't respected? Threatening. We're not supposed to be thinking like this. We're not supposed to be talking like this. What are we doing proud of how we talking with this broken English? How the f*** are we making poetry out of this broken English? Why are you guys bringing street conversation to the mainstream world? Stay in your place. Stay out of there. I don't like looking at you. Mm. Fix your pants. Fix your hat. Y'all supposed to stay in the gutter. Get out of here. What are you doing invading my home? Why are my kids liking your music? What's going on? I don't like you. I don't like you. That's all they're saying. Mm-hmm. And we know it. So that's, that's why I'm, I'm proud to wear my sh- a little sack. I mean, I'm a grown man now. I don't have no business wearing saggy jeans. <laughs> no business at all, you know what I'm saying? But I might let it sag a little bit, just annoy a few stiff <laughs> just because I'm, that's what got me here. Mm-hmm. And I'm always going to stay true to that. And, you know, Nas's father was a jazz musician. Well, you know, incredible. I mean, a lot of these guys got musical backgrounds. Rakim can play like every instrument. Flavor can play like every instrument. So, you know, a lot of these cats go about this as, you know, music. You know, it's it's not just, you know, I just think, like my friend told me, you make it look easy and the press kind of leans toward the rock and roll side of it. The rock and roll side of it is, hey, how you partying? Uh, who who tore up the hotel? What girl you sleeping with? What kind of Ferrari did you buy? But you're forgetting that Aerosmith plays instruments. Like Keith Richards and those are really guitar players. It starts with the art. And then the, the rock and roll lifestyle really is available to anybody that's got money, honestly. You know, so once you get money, if you interview 100 people with money, they'll all sound like rock stars. It's funny. <laughs> when, when, when Nas is, when you ask that, when you ask Nas that question, uh-huh. he doesn't even have to take a second to think about mm-hmm. it. That is so, that is so close to, you can feel that pain, that upset that he has right there. And he's saying, and he just opens, he basically just opens up and lets it out. And it's but this you, thing that, that has driven him it's driven all to of us. be the guy that he is. It's driven all of us. You know, it's, it's what I call powered by hate. You know, people that are successful, you always usually working upstream, you know, and, and that's what makes you excel. 
You know, you know, there's a there's there's if once people start liking you, then it becomes difficult, you know, because now everybody's on your side. But when there's some kind of opposition to what you're doing, that's what rock lives off of. You know, it needs somebody to say it's not I don't like it, you know, and then you're like, yeah, yeah, I'm going to push this down your throat. Like if if I want to stay in shape, all I got to do is go to the Internet and hear somebody say, oh, ice tea's old. And I can go get another 20, 50 sets on the gym, you know, (laughs) use the use that negative energy to fuel you. And you'll find I used to tell parents, I said, if you really want your kids to stop listening to hip hop, act like you like it, too, you know. I say, hey, let's sit down and listen to this Ice-T album together. They'll hate it. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest, Ice-T, is the director and the host of the film Something from Nothing, The Art of Rap. Um, so I need to I need to ask you about this because I've read it several different places, but okay. um, I figured as long as you're sitting here Get in the my horse's studio, mouth, man, you got me. Yeah, exactly. So when I was a kid, I was born in 1981, mm-hmm. so... When I was a kid, I had no greater hero than Mr. T. Okay. Mr. T was like the the hero of my life until yeah. I was old enough to know that I should probably get a real real hero who has actually done stuff. Right. No offense to Mr. T. Mr. Great. T. Mr. T. He's got great. put on by being the best bouncer. He was in a yeah. bouncer's contest. So I want to know, I have heard from a number of sources that you actually wrote rhymes for Mr. T's weird sort of after school special video. Be somebody or be somebody's fool. It was an album by Mr. T. How did you... We actually used to have the album at my old college radio station. I've listened to it a number of times. I've, Mr. T is not a talented rapper. I, like I said, I'm still a Mr. T fan. I'm not putting the man down, but he's not good at rapping. <laughs> but what, how do you even get that job? A, is that true? And B, well, how, how do you, you do get... it? it? Very carefully, okay? <laughs> Mr. T is not the kind of person that's really going to take too much instruction. I mean, you ask, you ask Mr. T. <laughs> Especially ask, in 1985, right? Ask Mr. T, uh, what do you do on Thanksgiving? I don't eat. You know, I, cl- <laughs> I feed the hungry. I clothe the naked. You know, like, <laughs> Lord, have mercy. So I was just a hot rapper in L.A. at the time. They had a project for him. They said, we want to do this um, album called Be Somebody, Be Somebody's Fool. We want him to have positive raps. Uh, Can you do this? And I'm like, yeah, I mean, it was a work for hire. It was a job. It paid a little bit of money. I'm like, you know, blah. You say, in them days, you say, hey, I'll give you 25000 I'm like, guess what? I'll write that you know what I'm saying? So I said, give me the topics. And they wrote one about mama and they wrote one about this. And right, they, they just gave me the outlines. So I wrote these rhymes. So then they made the music and I had to rap, rap it over the raps. Then I had to give the tracks. This is how you do it. Then you give that to him and listen to it. And he rolled with it for like a month. And his job was to learn the raps. So somewhere floating around, there's a be somebody or be somebody fool's master with me rhyming all those damn rhymes. <laughs> somewhere. Whoever gets their hands on that, you're in trouble, man. I don't care. I mean, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> I'm on television. I'm caked out. I'm all right. I got a view of the ocean. So I'm all right. At this point, I can't say I've ever heard the album. I think I heard one or two of the songs. But, hey, it's Mr. T, man. You know, Mr. T had cereal, okay? So stop playing. Mr. T was the man back in the day. 
Um, there's this uh, there's this one song on the record that I I listen oh, to. Oh no, recently. you about to play it? Yeah, of course I am. Yeah, okay. I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna play it here no in the mother. studio. And this song, um, what's it called? It's called Treat, Treat Your Mother Right. right. Oh Lord, I know that. Mother, I always love her. Who made the music? Always for the oven with the burning heat. What she stood making sure I had something to Uh-oh. eat. Yeah, I probably got guess I spelt out mother for him, you know. <laughs> my temperature when I wasn't feeling right. Anxious for the hard-earned money she spent to keep clothes on my back and try to pay the rent. It's kind of super lyrical. I kind of like it. You know what it is, man. I was young. Mr. T was the man. I was kind of like happy to be able to do it for him. But rap can do a lot of things. You know, where you can rap about yourself. You can rap commercials. You can rap a lot of different things. It's a, it's a vocal delivery. That's the one thing I try to tell people. Rap is a vocal delivery. Hip-hop is the culture. So you take a, like a new pop singer like Keisha, and she's singing, you know, rapping, woke up the morning looking, feeling like P. Diddy. She's not hip-hop. She's just rapping. Anybody can rap. Like 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 they say, uh, Big Daddy Kane, if, you, if you, Dr. Zeus was a rapper, if you rhyme cat with hat, you're a rapper, you know? So, but being part of the culture means you, you know a little bit more about where it came from. Ice-T is the director, executive producer, and host of the documentary Something from Nothing, The Art of Rap. It's available on DVD now, and you can find it online at theartofrap.com. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. In the 80s, Aaron Freeman took on the identity of Gene Ween and co-founded the experimental rock band Ween. The group spawned an underground following obsessed with its live performances, diverse musical influences, and what they call brownness. There's a lot of change in Freeman's musical world this year. In May, the thumb-nosing alternative rocker released a solo album of cover songs by the 60s songwriter Rod McEwen. Your smile as it widens on your face Is like a child running off across the hill And I love your smile Music has been at the center of a lot of the big shifts in Freeman's life. In fact, he says there's one song that inspired him to become a musician in the first place. No Woman, No Cry. Yeah, the Bob Marley song. Like a lot of us, he grew up hearing it just about everywhere, but later in life he realized the kind of impact it actually had on him. I was in a van with a bunch of guys, all in their mid-twenties and listening to a lot of hip-hop and no woman no cry came on and suddenly all these rowdy youngins just stopped and everybody seemed to know all the words to it no woman no cry 
I realized it's just a timeless song. It just stops you in your tracks. Everybody loves that song. I've never heard anybody diss No Woman No Cry. So, definitely highly romantic. You know, we used to take trips to the Pine Barrens in New Jersey, which is something a lot of Philadelphians do. And, you know, when you go out there with a bunch of your friends and a potential girlfriend that you like, it's a hot summer day, and you're standing by the river. I was very new wave back then. I had the trench coat, and, uh, you know, opening my trench coat and putting said said girl in there. <laughs> I, I tie that song into all, all of that stuff. And it was just a, it was a wonderful period of my life. You know, the breakdown in A Woman No Cry when he's saying everything's going to be all right now. It's rhythmically genius. Everything's going to be all right it's incredible. It, it really moved me. He's consoling his woman, telling her everything is going to be all right. Everything is going to be all right. It's just perfect. And then it comes back into the chorus. It blew my mind. His vocal delivery on that is just unbelievable. I remember thinking, yeah, I could do this. I want to do this. I guess I could just relate to the vulnerability of it, the rhythm of it, the timing of it. And it just made me really excited to make music. And when I'm playing live, I definitely have him in mind a lot. I think this song changed my life by opening me up to love. At that age, I was just starting to grasp the concepts of love and other people and the importance of other people. So when I see that song, I think of just a, a young man becoming himself. It's very, very powerful. Aaron Freeman was a founding member of the alternative rock band Ween, and he currently records and tours as a solo artist. His most recent album, Marvelous Clouds, covers songs by the 60s songwriter Rod McEwen. After a break, my interview with unlikely starlet Greta Gerwig. If I can make people feel like you can look like a normal person and still be on screen, I think that's a good thing. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and PRI, Public Radio International. Bullseye is supported in part by Ask Metafilter, thousands of life's little questions answered online at ask.metafilter.com. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. 
Greta Gerwig was planning a career as a writer when her boyfriend asked her if he could use tapes of her real voicemail messages to him in a movie. They had a fight about it, but she agreed. And soon she was a leading lady in the micro-budgeted film movement that became known as Mumblecore. The big success of the tiny film Hannah Takes the Stairs made her reputation, and her easy on-screen style translated comfortably to bigger indies like Greenberg and even studio films like Arthur and No Strings Attached. This year, she had three big indie films, Whit Stillman's Damsels in Distress, Woody Allen's To Rome with Love, and most recently, Daryl Ween and Zoe Lister-Jones's Lola Verses. In Lola Verses, she plays a 30-ish woman whose perfect life, a gorgeous artist fiancé, a rent-controlled loft, farmer's market vegetable stir-fries, falls apart. She alienates friends and lovers as she struggles to figure out who she is without the definition of a relationship. Here's Gerwig commiserating with her best friend, played by the film's co-writer, Zoe Lister-Jones, after her fiancé breaks off their engagement. Luke is my partner in crime. He's the person I want to wake up with and I want to go to bed with. He's the whole reason I went back to school to get my PhD, and now I can't even afford to do that without splitting the bills. That is not true. You can still go to school. You just go work at your mom's restaurant part-time like you did after we graduated. What are we going to do about our friends? How are we supposed to split them up? I mean, you don't really have that many friends. That's true. Except for Henry. Henry is a mutual friend. Honestly, Lo, this is good. You know, you met Luke your, your junior year abroad. I mean, you were a baby. You need to be on your own again. You've never been with anyone else. That's not good for character. No, look at me. Being single builds character. We spoke earlier this year. Greta, welcome to Bullseye. It's great to have you on the show. Hi, thank you. <laughs> um, I I wanted to ask you about Sacramento, where you're from. Oh, I love talking about Sacramento. Oh, that's awesome, because that's totally what I'm about to ask you about. Okay, cool. <laughs> um, I'm from the Bay Area, and I went to uh, University of California uh, College. And Wait, which, which one? Santa Cruz. Santa Cruz. Oh, well, very cool. Oh, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> It was kind of cool. No, uh, super cool. I mean, Santa Cruz is like beautiful and laid back and I don't know. There's lots of communes. <laughs> <laughs> You've described some things that are very accurate about Santa Cruz. None of them are things that are traditionally associated with being cool, but they are, <laughs> well, <laughs> they are nice things about Santa Cruz. <laughs> I'm not really the best, like arbiter of coolness <laughs> but there was totally a guy who there was totally a guy who would always bring almond butter everywhere that i knew that sounds totally normal to me <laughs> and awesome i stayed at a commune there where they had decided that they weren't going to use uh any currency everything was based on bartering and they would try to barter with the electric company which doesn't really work <laughs> the electric company does not need any of their services well i mean i think the problem with that is that you get into trouble when you're trying to barter with the electric company and then the guy you know comes in the door and gives the status report on his bartering efforts with the phone company Right, right. It's big. It's it, There are many problems with not using currency because it's pretty much the only thing that everyone on earth has agreed on <laughs> makes life much better. <laughs> <laughs> but it's up to Santa Cruz to really try. Well, I, I, um, I grew up in the Bay Area and so okay. spent some time as a kid uh, in Sacramento. Mm -hmm. But mostly it was doing things like... Um, 
you know, going on school trips where you get to sit in the lieutenant governor's chair and things like that. Sure. Um, And so all I know about Sacramento is from friends from college uh, who mostly complained about it. Yeah. I mean, well, it's not a it's not a bustling exciting city the way San Francisco or Los Angeles or Chicago New York are but it is it it does have its own thing going on I love Sacramento I I I did you know I went to college in New York and I did I am staying in the big city but um it's got a very the population's really I don't know. They're inve- they're excited about the arts in an interesting way because it's does it, they don't have like the the funding or the infrastructure that like San Francisco has a great ballet company and opera and they have the SF MoMA, but Sacramento is invested in the arts in a very like grassroots, very like people do it as a hobby kind of way. There's lots and lots of community theater in Sacramento where people who are professionals in other fields will use their downtime to act in plays and musicals, which was actually such a cool thing for me as a kid because I got to do a lot of it. And I also, I went to a play almost every weekend in Sacramento. It was sometimes like a children's version of Waiting for Godot, but it was always really fun. It's interesting, too, because, I mean, Sacramento's a, a reasonably cosmopolitan place. So I imagine that people were, at the very least, aspiring to a, a, a relatively high level of professionalism compared to most sort of community theater efforts. So you get sort of a, a nice mix of a nice mix of people who know what a good thing is and then also... Um, it, it's actually a community effort rather than just being hired guns. Yeah, I mean, it was a. It, it, I mean, for me, it was a really good mix. I, there's also a, something to, I think, growing up in a place where things aren't the highest level of something isn't immediately attainable is really helpful for creativity. I spent a lot of time in. 24-hour grocery stores doing weird things with my friends and I I don't a lot of that stuff is I think it it really helps later because you have this wellspring of just stuff and ideas that you are not depending on other people to tell you it's okay to go make something you just sort of have you do it because it's otherwise it's boring life is boring so um it was a combination of there was enough stimulation and enough boredom to cr- to to make it an environment where I felt like it was inspiring. I think it would probably be a fireable offense for you to say that stuff about doing weird things in 24-hour grocery stores <laughs> and for me then not to ask for an example. <laughs> oh, oh, weird stuff. Oh, oh, just like, I mean, if it's a 24-hour grocery store... I mean, none of my friends and I, we we didn't drink, we didn't do drugs, we were total theater nerds, so uh, they didn't have a reason to kick us out of the grocery store. We would just, like, you know, get in uh, those carts that you push around and push each other around. We'd, like, we'd reorganize the shelves sometimes, which they'd get annoyed with us about, but <laughs> um, we do it artistically and nicely. Uh, it was just... 
a place to go hang out and look at products mostly. <laughs> um, but it no nothing truly um, destructive or anything like that. I I I'm I am drawn to the idea of reorganizing the products in the grocery store nicely. Well, yeah, that was it was part of it. We we could uh, or or facing all I don't know, we'd like face all the labels a different direction <laughs> for some reason. I mean, I don't know, we did a lot of stuff like that. We also did a lot of stuff like just late at night walking around uh looking looking for things to do we used to bumper sticker cars we thought we were like revolutionaries so we made a bunch of bumper stickers about doing my part to destroy the environment and we used to put them on suvs (laughs) and that was our big like we really thought we were like che Guevara. i um I once went into a bookstore, one of my favorite bookstores, mm-hmm. Adobe Books in San Francisco, right right near where I grew oh, up. Yeah. And um, and they had reorganized the entire bookstore. It's a used bookstore um, by color. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> and it was it was a it was I mean it was totally amazing. Uh-huh. Uh huh. But just profoundly disconcerting. It's also. baffling. My one of my friends still she organizes all of her books by color. She's uh, she still does that, and it's impossible to find anything. Like, <laughs> in what world would I remember that this book I need has an orange spine? <laughs> I think if I remember that, that would be the sign that I'm crazy. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was what was so cruel about it, because I think the sort of the the idea behind it is who goes into a used bookstore with the idea that they're going to buy this one particular book but on this one day my wife had decided she was going to read Anna Karenina and so we had actually gone into a used bookstore with the plan to buy a specific <laughs> book and and had found and that no. we had to go up to the counter and say do you happen to know what color Anna Karenina is <laughs> oh no that's that's the only time they've ever gotten asked that question <laughs> <laughs> it's you and someone with synesthesia who's asking <laughs> that question do you know do you know what Anna Karenina tastes like yeah exactly um i get the impression that you had a childhood that was um jam-packed with activities yeah i did i my my mom was very good at getting me to whatever i was interested in i it was a lot of stuff i was interested in in a lot of stuff and i had a lot of energy so um it was when i was young it was a lot of dance but not just it wasn't just the standard tap jazz ballet like i took hula dancing i took like native american tribal dancing i took hip-hop i took african dancing i'm like i really went for it i i think it was i mean it was wonderful for me and and i think it was my mom in part was trying to make up for her childhood which she felt like they no one had encouraged certain parts of her so i had a fully lessened childhood you you were like a, a you were a very serious ballet dancer at one point, right? I was I was I really loved it. I really I I wanted to do it for my life. Um, I've I I never was really I was never very capable of doing things halfway or doing things as a hobby. I always ever since I can remember, I've always 
wanted to do something professionally or uh, in a real way and something that seems kind of inaccessible, something like I want to, I, I mean, a lot of little girls say I want to be a ballerina, but I, 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 I would have done it had I not been <laughs> stopped from doing it. And I think um, I would have done it in some capacity. I don't know that I would have been, you know, in New York City ballet, but I would have figured it out somehow. And I think I've just always been a person who, I, I I wish I was a little bit more capable of doing something as a hobby or just because I enjoyed it. But I have this horrible, some, comp- some combination of being passionate and competitive, which leads me to uh, throw myself into things like ballet wholeheartedly and really mean it. Ballet is a really intense thing to be into when you're the age that um, the sort of age of reckoning of ballet, I guess, is like when you're 12, 13, 14, yeah. if you're a girl. Yeah, that was mine. That was my age of reckoning. And I mean, in contrast to, I mean, even other forms of dance to some extent, but I mean, most other artistic pursuits, you know, ballet is something where you could be, I mean, you could even be talented, like have natural talent mm-hmm. and the drive and will to succeed and just have some thing about your body not be the right thing about like sort of like being a gymnast and growing too mm-hmm. tall yeah i mean i think it's a, i think in, in to americans who who don't like tracking their children it seems cruel but i remember reading about when i was obsessed with ballet it was you know in in russia when you know in the former Soviet Union, when they had nationally supported arts, and in in England, where they have the Royal Ballet School, and any any country that supports dance in a sort of institutionalized way, they look at children when they're about five and six, and look at their bodies, and look at their parents, and test all these things, and their turnout, and their you know their rotation, and their flexibility, and they just weed children out based on genetics and based on natural gifts and that seems so cruel to us like they wouldn't get the chance even if they really loved it but in some ways it prevents a lot of heartbreak because the reality is if your body isn't right there's there's literally there's almost nothing you can do your body's just not right and um of course some of the children who are accepted still don't have the right body but um it, it's a way to to kind of guard against that what was the situation for you? Well, I had sort of a combination of I, I was very I got very tall very fast and I always knew I didn't have a I didn't have great turnout um was part of it. And I mean, I was I was also going to I was it also looked like I was not going to have the perfect body, like I wasn't going to have the perfect tiny ballerina body. But um I mean, I think that would that wouldn't have stopped me, but the fact that I was going to wreck my knees was the thing that made my mom finally pull me out and say, um, we're not going to do this because if you're going to be in crutches by the time you're 18, it's not worth it. So um, I just literally didn't have enough turnout in my hips. What was that? What was that like for you at the time? I was so angry at, at my mom. I, I don't, which was sort of misguided, but I was, I was so angry. I was angry when I was uh, um, seven because I wasn't allowed to go to ballet classes. I would have gone every single day for hours and hours a day. I, 
I had this kind of insatiable feeling and I and my mom, whenever my mom would try to kind of make it more I mean I think one of the reasons I took too, so many different types of dance was that my mom kept hoping that I wasn't going to be crazy um, which I was um, but it was I was devastated I was totally devastated and I still like through high school sometimes I would say things like you know if you hadn't taken me out of ballet I really could have been somebody and you you like eliminated that possibility for me and um now i'm i'm very grateful that i was taken out when i was because i think i would have i would have just wrecked my, myself um but i was i was so angry <laughs> do you think that that same um that, that same kind of passion was an important part of your success as an actress because you were you um you know you went from zero to 60 or you know from 10 or 15 to 60 from someone who was vaguely considering the possibility of being an actress to being a full-time actress within a, a narrow space um you must have you must have really thrown yourself into it wholeheartedly i did I, I think that there, in some ways, is a bit of a mythology that I, I have participated in making, but that there's an idea of me that, like, I didn't, I never acted, and I, that that that's not quite true. Like, I acted a lot. I acted a lot in high school, and I wanted to go to acting school. Actually, coming out of high school, but I, I did when I was in school at at Barnard. I. I was very lucky because there were professors from Juilliard who were actually teaching at Barnard, um, professors in acting and in um, playwriting. And I I took acting, but I, I fell in love with writing. And, and I think it was, it, that became a, the biggest part of my life. And I, and I loved acting, but I, in some ways I always kind of, dismissed it just on the basis of it seemed impossible to actually accomplish to be a professional actor that seemed beyond my reach but then the way it happened I I just kept getting these amazing opportunities where I was working as a actor and writer and collaborator and I got to really just throw myself into things with the fervor that I always have so I was very lucky. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is the actress Greta Gerwig. This year she had three big indie films, Whit Stillman's Damsels in Distress, Woody Allen's To Rome with Love, and most recently Daryl Ween and Zoe Lister-Jones's Lola Verses. In this clip from the movie, Lola and her mom, played by Deborah Winger, talk about unreasonable expectations in relationships. Hey, remember how much I loved Cinderella as a kid? What a sick kid. It's a classic. It's what messes little girls up because we all get obsessed with shoes and then we think that some guy is going to come put them on our feet. That is a man's job. I actually thought I was living in a fairy tale and that Luke's shoe fit me perfectly. I guess no shoe's a perfect fit, especially when you have slightly irregular feet. Right. Well, you got to find your own style, baby. Are you telling me to go shoe shopping? I want to ask you a sort of an odd question. I think that your sure. um, 
I think that one of your great gifts as an actress is that you have a a very, very natural feeling on screen, which is a, a tough thing to have. Um, but I, I think that that combined with the fact that you made your name playing in this series of films in this genre that were often about young people trying to find themselves mm-hmm. um, in relationships would lead people to think that you are that person that you played in these movies to one extent yeah. or other to in a way that they wouldn't with with, uh, you know, if it was Edward Norton. Or something sure. like that, someone whose performance is more of a show. Oh yeah, people think I'm these these people all the time. It's funny too. It 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 changes based on it's these subtle shifts of um, what who people think I am. I think after I did Hannah, I experienced that people thought I was sort of a selfish narcissist, and then after I did. Um, Greenberg, uh, I think people thought I was very sweet, but a kind of a doormat and willing to take a lot of abuse. And it, and it's funny. I mean, I would say more than anything else, it changes the way um, men at parties relate to me. <laughs> they, it's it's weird. It's like based on what I've done. If they've seen it, they kind of think, oh, well, I'm a secret angry man, so that girl is going to love this because they think that I'm that girl. And I'm like, oh, no. I've become more at ease with the fact that, you know, there is just a level on which, like, whatever it is I'm doing in my acting, people think that they they know me and they're sh- sure that that person I'm playing is me. Um, and... I think ultimately that's fine. <laughs> um, I don't. I don't intend to do that. I think it's just something that happens. One of the things that I I really liked about Lola Versus and, and thought was really interesting was that it has a, a lot of the trappings of a romantic comedy. I mean, it has kind of the aesthetics of right. a, a romantic comedy. It has you know Zoe Lister Jones who. Um, co-wrote the movie it plays a kind of classic quippy best friend and uh, does a heck of a job of it she's hilarious in the movie mm-hmm. um and it is you know a lady who has a sort of catastrophic fall apart at the beginning and goes through a series of romantic misadventures right um but it's a story about um, it, it's sort of rather unexpectedly a story about um, about getting to know oneself and dealing with yourself rather than uh, the external thing of getting into the right relationship and having that make you right. Right. Which I think is really unusual in any movie, but especially a movie, um, you know, especially a movie that centers around a lady. Yeah, I I think it's incredibly rare. I think um, that's one of the reasons I really liked the script. When I started reading it, I had had a feeling that I knew where I was going based on rom-com tropes. And then pretty quickly I realized it, it was going to be going in a different direction. And when it ended the way that it did... I was so satisfied by it and I was so happy that they they went there and they they did that and um it's a lot of weight on your shoulders. I mean, it's certainly yeah. 
It's certainly the film in your career that is most about your character on screen. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is a you're the you're the top line in this without a doubt. Was that kind of scary? It was so scary. It's so scary still. Um, going into it, I, I, there was a lot of worries. Is she going to be unlikable? Um, is are people going to just not like this character and not like this girl or think she's too arrogant at the beginning and I, I actually was luckily enough was able to put a lot of that out of my mind I think you know in a certain way I actually I think I always veer towards just trying to make it as truthful and as grounded as I can and I really don't worry about how likable I am or do I look good I that those are two things that I I think I just can't get that interested in. Can I ask you one thing about the looking sure. good part of that? Yeah. Um I was I was talking to uh one of my colleagues here in the office and I said to her, "Oh, what do you think about Greta Gerwig?" And I thought, "Oh, and she said, "Oh, she's great." And I said, "Well, what what do you think is, you know, what do you think is really distinctive about her? What should I talk to her about?" And she said she said, "Oh, how sometimes in her movies she looks kind of ugly. And I said, what do you mean by that? <laughs> because I, I have to say, you know, I'm a, I'm a, a straight guy and I can, um, you know, I can, I can with authority say that you're a very pretty lady. And, mm. um, and she said, well, I mean, she said, well, she just doesn't always look, sometimes she looks like a human being. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I can't help it. I just am a human being. No, I used to really want to be... I think when I started out in making bigger films, I had this, um, you know, when you watch most starlets on screen, they always look perfect. And I thought that that would just happen to me, like that <laughs> I would just become perfect looking and somehow magically you go to Hollywood and then all of a sudden you're perfect and beautiful all the time. And then I realized that that's just not true. It doesn't happen for all people. And that I was not going to be one of the people it happened for. I mean, but I'm, you know, I, I think, uh, I think we're living through a really great time in, in, in films for women. And I'm really happy to be the I'm glad your coworker said, you know, <laughs> that I don't always look perfect because I think I, I feel really honored to be a person who people think of as a real person because I am a real person and um, I think so often movies and magazines show us things that are unrealistic and just make people feel bad about themselves and if I can make people feel like you know they're they're uh, you know everybody you can look like a normal person and still be on worthy of being on screen I think that's a good thing Well, Greta, I sure appreciate you taking the time to be on Bullseye. It was really a pleasure to talk to you. Oh, thank you. Nice to talk to you, too. Greta Gerwig is the star of Lola Versus. It's out on DVD now. We spoke earlier this year. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Every week we close the show with a recommendation from yours truly. It's called The Outshot. Hey, you know what I love? Jokes. 
We're living in a golden age of comedy based on perfectly constructed, awkward situations, and that's great, too. But a lot of the time, I don't want perfectly awkward situations. I want jokes. And then I want some more jokes. And look, if they're rooted in character and situation, that's great. But what I want is is that click of the puzzle that comes from a joke. If it's stupid or clever or high-minded or low-minded, I just want that thing that fits together perfectly and gives me that jolt of laugh chemicals in my brain, my joke brain. I want to live in a world where laughing is the absolute most important thing, or at least visit that world once in a while, which I'm pretty sure is why for much of my life, my favorite filmmaker was Mel Brooks, and my favorite movie was History of the World Part One. Look, Mel Brooks has made better movies. Most people prefer Blazing Saddles or Young Frankenstein. And as an adult, I can see that there are a lot of holes in History of the World Part 1. It's just that it is so fun. Some of the jokes are so stupid that you almost can't believe they're really in a movie. Those ones are my favorite ones. Like when the two French aristocrat guys are riding together in the carriage. Oh, but with this long trip and this exhausting conversation, I'm famished. Benev? Yes? Do we have any of those delicious raisins left? You ate yours. These are mine. Au contraire. They are mine. I paid for them. Hand them over. I paid for them. These are mine. Don't be saucy with me, Bernays. <laughs> I mean, that is dumb. I love it so much. Or when Dom DeLuise is being Julius Caesar and he's receiving all the plunder of the Orient and he gets a bathtub and a bunch of jewelry. Tanya! Bathtub! Tanya bath! I'm going to have a treasure bath! Treasure bath! Treasure bath! Oh man, when Caesar starts rubbing gold necklaces in his underarms, I just lose it every single time. And I've seen this movie a lot of times. And that's barely even a joke. It's more like just pure, concentrated goofiness. But it's delivered with absolute conviction by absolute masters. When Torquemada, the Grand Inquisitor of the Spanish Inquisition, as portrayed by celebrity Jewish person Mel Brooks, leads the Inquisitors in song with the imprisoned Jews singing back up, oh, it's just over for me. We should have more of that in the world. And that's my outshot. The Inquisition, let's begin. The Inquisition, look out, Sam. We have a mission to convert the Jews. We're going to teach them wrong from right. We're going to help them see the light and make an offer that they can't refuse. That the Jews just can't refuse. Confirm. That's it for this week's Bullseye. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer, Julia Smith. Our editor, Nick White. Our intern, Lindsay Pavlis. Our interstitial music is provided by Dan Wally. Our theme music is Huddle Formation by The Go Team. 
Our thanks to the Go Team and their label, Memphis Industries, for letting us use that. I guess that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Production of Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is supported in part by the menswear blog, Put This On, presenting the Put This On Gentlemen's Association. Members receive a handmade pocket handkerchief in the mail every 60 days. More information at putthison.com. And by Ask Metafilter. Thousands of life's little questions answered. Online at ask.metafilter.com. Support for this program comes from this station and public radio international stations nationwide and is made possible in part by the PRI Program Fund, whose contributors include the Ford Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. PRI Public Radio International.